Welcome to my special guest, Dr. Paulina Traverna. Traverna, that's Traverna, right. <laughs> um, who's joined me all the way from sunny Glasgow yes, this morning. Thank you very much. Um, so we're going to talk about lots of things today, and I'm really excited. I was going to do the drum roll as well, because having a doctor always, always, <laughs> always necessitates a, a, a drum roll. Do you want to give the listeners and the audience a bit of a background? Um, who are you? What's, what's your areas of interest, etc., etc.? Sure, and thanks for having me. No I'm problem. really glad to be in a real studio. I never <laughs> have, so this is something new. Um, so, hello everyone. My name is, uh, I'm Paulina, or Dr. Paulina Trevena. <laughs> Formal versus informal, right? <laughs> Formal versus yes, yeah. informal. <laughs> and my background is, so I'm a social scientist. I was a researcher at, the, at various universities for almost 18 years. And uh, and moved into hypnotherapy a few years ago. Oh. So now I describe myself as a hypnotherapist, mindset coach, and researcher. Goodness, that's a lot. That's <laughs> Is it a too lot. much? Uh, so social scientist <laughs> yeah. and researcher. Yeah. Goodness. Okay. Can we start there? Is that all right? Yeah, so, sure. So social scientist to me sounds fascinating. So I'd love to love to explore that. Mm-hmm. In terms of that, eighteen years of research. Yeah. That's a long time. Um, I find that people either suit the academic world or they don't. You clearly do or did. Talk to us about that environment, the skills and the traits you need and the passion that you you must have to be in that world. Um, Because it's a very strange world to me, the academic world. I don't belong there for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's an interesting one. (laughs) So one, one thing I'd say is that I actually stepped into the academic world by chance. Ah. I wasn't really planning to be an academic, but I was always really into education. So I've got two master's degrees and a PhD. (laughs) Now you're just showing off. Can I compete with a couple of my GCSEs? Is that all right? (laughs) I think I just didn't know where to stop and when to stop. And to be honest, I, I always had this ambition of oh. having a PhD mm-hmm. for no apparent reason at all. Okay. I mean, I'll come back to that in a moment, mm-hmm. maybe when I'll start speaking about the ADHD, because I think now in hindsight, I think it's connected. You can join the dots. I now. can join the dots. But you weren't able to at the time. No, it okay. was just a, an ambition I had. And I it was like a mission. There, were, uh, there was a lot of things happening during my PhD, like really difficult life experiences. And I kept going and going and going. And it took me almost nine years to complete it. But I got that. <laughs> well done, well done. Perseverance though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Perseverance. Yeah. And uh, and as I say, I stepped into the academic world by chance, really, because of doing the PhD. My earlier degree was in linguistics and okay. I worked as a teacher of English as a foreign language for almost 10 years. Because that accent, tell us, tell us how that accent's come to be. That accent baffles everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm originally from... Uh, Guildford and Surrey. Oh, yeah. I immediately thought Guildford. Yeah, I, I know. I know the moment I say that people in the UK are like, that's not a Guildford accent. <laughs> so I lived there. So I'm um, a child of a mixed marriage in terms of nationality. Okay. So my dad was English. My mum was Polish. Ah. In the 70s, when I was born, that was really uh, strange because Poland was still a communist country. So you couldn't quite wow. travel and meet people and so on. Um And we lived in England till I was seven and then relocated to Poland. And at the time, you didn't have the same opportunities as you do now to speak English, to maintain the language. So I 
mainly maintaining maintained English um, through reading the Beano. <laughs> I love the Beano. Beano dandy. <laughs> close, close. Yeah, because my dad basically, you know, remained in England. Okay. And um, it was a kind of, now I know it's called a transnational marriage. So okay. one parent is in one country, the other parent is in another country, or yep. the family is just dispersed across countries. Um, so I lost my kind of English, English accent. Yeah. And um, I moved back to the UK in my 30s and already had a bit of a off, <laughs> sorry, accent. <laughs> and then I moved up to Scotland 10 years ago. And I think that's when my accent and intonation just went wild. <laughs> but the foreign language, English is a foreign language. Uh, mm. that, that would make sense that you'd, you'd, you'd go and do that in, in the teaching capacity. And yeah. that was from teaching capacity that you went, you went into that PhD and then you ended up in the whole academic world. Right? Yeah, kind of. So I was getting a bit tired of teaching English because okay. it's... Um, you know, you can do it in different ways, but it does have its limitations. Yeah. And at the same time, I'd always interest, been interested in society, how society works, how what mo motivates people, you know, all these kind of systems. So I, so I went into social sciences and through that went on to do a PhD at the same time teaching English just to keep my finances going. <laughs> and then through doing my PhD, so I had a special interest in migration, in international migration. Okay. And I was actually researching how um, the impact of working way below your qualifications on Polish migrants working in London. Uh. So we're talking like people who have masters of science degrees in biology, but are working as cleaners, which was happening quite a lot. Um, in the early 2000s, late late 1990s. I think it still happens today, it right? Does, you look absolutely. at different demographics, different geographies, and it still happens today. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. 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 So I was really interested in, you know, why? Why does, how does this happen? Why does this happen? And how does it make you feel when mm -hmm. you know that you're so capable, but you're cleaning toilets somewhere or working in a cafe? Yeah. It is frustrating. There are various kind of... Um, ways people manage to sustain their mental health basically while doing things like that okay. but um but that's how i got into migration research and through that i got in touch with a migration research center in poland well it's actually called the center of migration research okay um and started working there <laughs> and then i relocated to the uk started working at universities here and continued in this area of specialization, international migration. And I then kind of moved a bit into other areas um, like families or um, addiction studies. <laughs> but um, yeah, but, but my main area was international migration. And I think the thing many people don't realize about the academic world and specifically about the academic world in the UK and other countries such as the US, that it is a very, very difficult work environment, very difficult. So I'd been on fixed term contracts mm -hmm. for all these 18 years that I was working at universities. And, so there's um, no assurity of... Absolutely of, not. Of, about 50%, no, about 50% of people of academics working in academia are on fixed term contracts. Ooh. And the only pathway, academic pathway to a permanent job is uh, to become a lecturer. It's very competitive. 
And I never wanted to become a lecturer. Mm -hmm. I just I have a passion for research. Yeah. I didn't not, not that I don't have a passion for teaching. I taught for many years, but um, but I was aware that lecturers work even harder than researchers wow. and that they have even more hats to wear. And that really terrified me. You know, the, the thought of being on a number of committees, the thought of answering all the student emails and taking part in recruitment and having to generate money for the university. It's a lot, right? It's a lot. It is a lot. It is much more than people realise. And I think in general, we have this perception that academics are just sitting there sipping their coffees and having that, know, that's honestly what i thought was happening mm -mm. No? it is a really it's Stressful. like being in corporate but without the perks wow. <laughs> that's that, how that, i that describe does it does not sound good that does not sound good no and it's and there's a lot of issues with mental health because people and another thing is it's a really high pressure environment especially if you're working at the top universities which i was working you know southampton university glasgow university of glasgow they're yeah. all the so-called russell group yeah um you know, top class universities, and the pressure is really high. And, and everybody's overworked all the time. Like I know very, 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 I don't actually think I know anyone <laughs> who's managing, it, it, it isn't. That, yeah, that, who's just managing the workload. Um, so it's a really difficult work environment. And after a number of years, I just thought, that's it. That's me. I need to get out. So you, but, but that's good, right? Because you recognize that you were, you were personally reaching your own threshold. Yeah. And, you know, that was a conscious thing and you've, you've done something about it, right? So, so yeah. you, 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 you've come away from that. So the, so the social, the social science bit, mm -hmm. and, and we'll talk about the deviation now away from academic, but the social science bit has always fascinated me mm. because when I when I kind of see the world and I think I'm I, I view it in a very strange way compared to other people. Right. And and I think probably, you know, the similarities and why we got talking about lots of different things. Mm. But all around me, I see artificial human made mm -hmm. constructs. Yeah. So, you know, just just to just to kind of emphasize that a bit. You know, you, you've got a, a bit of land and the, there's now a boundary in between mm. a natural planet mm -hmm. uh, and there's a boundary in between and, and that's called this country and that's called that country, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of tribe stuff yeah. that has grown over, over millennia, uh, which now means that this bit of land is recognized as one part. And, and just if you actually take a step back and think about that, mm -hmm. it's ludicrous, it's ludicrous. The fact that another thing that I look at is, you know, think about, I don't know, raspberries or blackberries growing on a bush. The natural abundance of the natural world. Somebody takes those raspberries, mm. puts them in a container, and now that now they're going to charge you money for those things that are naturally given by the world to its population. So I just see I just see things in a different way that makes me ask questions I guess is what I'm saying. So mm -hmm. you know the 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 differences between I see people focus on difference all the time, right? So you like that music. Oh, I don't like that music. I like this music. You dress like that. Oh, I dress like this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When the reality is instead of focusing on the things that divide us, divide us, <laughs> we're all we're all human beings, right? And so there's an equality. There should be 
and you will know more than anyone else, there's not an equality, but there should be an equality of the value of life on every single person, regardless of their you know beliefs their you know their their hobbies their you know but but it but it's all human construct is my point yeah. it's all human construct and it fascinates me <laughs> it fascinates me so if i was if i was inclined or capable from an academic point of view i would be very drawn to that subject i think mm. just to dive into it a bit yeah and i think especially with with international migration so much of what you've mentioned is there because i'm a i'm a qualitative researcher so that means i don't really deal with large data sets i don't analyze numbers i go out observe the world observe people speak to them do things like focus groups and uh, gather information that way so i've always been very let's say close to my, to my, I don't know what to say, how to yeah. call them research participants or yeah. research subjects, yeah. because I'd, I'd even do things like go and work in a factory with them just to see what it's like. And experience it. And experience right? it yeah. myself yeah. so that I actually know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. and I feel what I'm talking about. And everything that you said about these artificial divisions, I mean, it really comes into focus when you're speaking about people coming to a given country for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, to escape repression, whether it's to to, to earn some money because mm -hmm. the abundance isn't there uh, in their countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but these these divisions are very much there, aren't they? And this treatment of others, you know, in a disdainful or disrespectful Way, but justified by the human construct. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Justified right? by this feeling that I'm up here yeah, and you're down that's there. What I mean. And um, yeah, and I think, especially when I think about migration, and we mentioned that earlier that, you know, my first, my PhD was on these highly educated people who yes. are coming here and working way below their qualifications yeah. level. Yeah. Often one of the reasons was because they didn't have much English. And I think even that, even language, that is such an interesting thing because. Often you're speaking to somebody who doesn't have enough language to really express themselves. Communication then is critical. Communication is critical because if you don't have the, the language, you can't, you can't ex express how much you know. Yeah. Your value as a person is difficult, you know, and, um, and I think that's particularly difficult for a lot of people who move, well, let's just say to the UK and without enough English. They go to work in these low-skilled jobs, right? Because that's the only jobs where they can find yeah. employment, despite yeah. of their background, despite of their intelligence. And then it's it can be really, really difficult to work your way up. Of course, there's a group who is more, you know, I, I, I can say I'm one of the group, right, that came yeah. to work in a high-skilled job. And it's a kind of different category. But um, yeah, but there are plenty of people, really smart people out there who just, you know, came for economic reasons, for example, and and just need to, I don't know if I should say accept, <laughs> but are just faced with the situation of being put down in a way or treated differently. And it's it, hard. <laughs> it must be hard. And, yeah. and again, you can only experience it, I think, to understand it. Right, mm. and and so looking from the outside in, it, it you you can appreciate it, but I don't think you can truly understand it unless you're you're in the in that position, right? Mm. So it makes it difficult. The 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 final question on the kind of research and and the academic side for you is that clearly the research you know brought conclusions and observations out. Mm. 
was there anything in that work that looked at possible areas of mitigation or possible solutions to those challenges at a societal level or was it yes. more kind of specific in terms of addressing that problem with this plaster you know and fixing that specific issue or or, or were you able to look at are there are there or is there hope in terms of allowing society to operate think independent thinking and apply common sense and logic mm. in a more meaningful way is was there any of that or was it just you know conclusions and observations based on reiterating the differences um no okay. <laughs> i mean so there was a so so a few years back i actually did a project um for the scottish parliament on should Scotland introduce an integration strategy for new migrants to the country? And I do still believe, and my, my answer to that question, based on, of course, research analysis and, you know, speaking to a lot of people, <laughs> um, was that, yes, Scotland could do with an integration strategy because that levels the ground a bit. Um, because if people coming here are educated mm -hmm. as to what to expect, you know, what, what are the rules in this country? Because you come somewhere, you don't know. No. You learn in practice. Absolutely. Nobody tells you. No. And, the, and, and the further away culturally the people coming in are, the less they understand. Yeah. Because it's a completely different context. And, you know, you might be angry that your, I don't know, your neighbor who's from some other country is not taking the rubbish out. Mm -hmm. But if they don't know they're supposed exactly. to be taking yeah. the rubbish out, yeah. or if it's not within their culture, they need to be kind of educated as yeah. well, right? And um, and I just think um, and there's, of course, various aspects to that. And one thing that I'm all also very often observing is that people come here and are very isolated and, you know, and you can say, oh, they just stick to each other. Yes. But how are they supposed to get out of that circle if a they don't have enough English? Yeah. B, they're working in factories yeah. with other people from their country. Yeah. I've done a lot of rural research. Um, so research in rural areas in England, in Scotland. And what I you know, kept coming across time and time again was that 90% or more of the workers in a given country or farm were Polish. And then uh, some people were either English or from other countries of Eastern Europe. If you're in that environment, you don't learn English. You know, I've, I've actually interviewed a few Bulgarians, yeah. Czech people yeah. in Polish because they didn't have enough English to speak to me. But because they were working among Poles for a number of years, they picked up the Polish, they'd picked up the Polish wow, wow, which is wow. just ridiculous when you think about it. So I really believe that if we put some systems of support in place yeah. and just some places where you can actually build bridges between communities yes. um, to help people integrate, because it's not that, you know, some people will never want to, you know, they'll have their culture, they'll just want to be of course. with Within their culture, Absolutely. that's it. There yeah. are people like yeah. that, and there's no denying that. But many people would like to participate more in the community Absolutely. or in the in society. But there are a number of barriers. So language can be a barrier. Yeah. Then you've got a number of people who are working really, really hard, you know, in these factories and so on. Ten hours a day. So time day is the issue there. Time. Right? And if yeah. they've got a family, yeah. it's, it's often, you know, minimum wage work. 
you don't have much money. So basically, you know, it's it often ha- happens that couples work interchangeably. So one partner works, you know, day and then, shift. And then and that then, stresses the relationship because there's yeah. not a lot of time together. And there's just not much time for interaction yeah, with other yeah, people or yeah. the community or what have you. And um, and I just believe that if we have these systems in place where people come here and actually are, I don't know, buddied up with someone, <laughs> given the opportunity to, to learn English, given the opportunity to learn about the culture, but it would is, change This is what the drives me mad. I, I yeah. completely agree. This is what drives me mad because, you know, I would almost I would almost challenge back and say, um, and this absolutely isn't a reflection on you. I'm glad to you, I'm glad that you went through the research to come to that conclusion. But I, but I'm really looking at you know bodies, governments, councils, and saying, how do you not reach that conclusion anyway? Mm. I mean, you, what do you need to come to that conclusion? It's so obvious to come to that conclusion, right? Because the benefits of integration and support, mutual support both ways Mm -hmm. for everyone involved. I mean, what, what do you, what do you need here? What, like, what do you need? And then, so then the research gets done. I still don't see any integration, right? Policies. And it's just how, how, you know, I just see this time and time again in many different areas, not just in terms of immigration, Mm -hmm. people just kicking the can down the road. Mm-hmm. kicking the can down the road let's keep kicking and it goes on for centuries let alone decades mm-hmm. um oh don't get me started anyway so yeah. <laughs> acad- academic research comes to an end don't want to be in that environment anymore because it's stressful and you've done you've done a, a long a long stint I've, right yeah <laughs> so talk to us about the new world then mm-hmm. and what what that looks like in mm-hmm. terms of the future Okay, so um, I moved very unexpectedly for a lot of people into hypnosis or hypnotherapy. And that came as a surprise to many of my colleagues or people who know me from the research world. (laughs) Because it's a bit fluffy, I think, you know, from now, I'm Mm. just being candid. From an outsider looking in, anything kind of hypnotherapy related... I think back to kind of stage acts on TV, you know, where you kind of watch the the watch and then you go asleep and then you mm. the 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 performer gets the person to do funny things, right? Yeah. So there's a there's almost like a comedic element for me as a layman that doesn't understand the power of hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. So and every every single person is different. So I imagine it's impactful for particular traits or particular people, and then maybe not so impactful for others. Mm-hmm. But so you 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 weren't even involved in it and suddenly it's a it's a good thing so tell us yeah tell us that story then okay so let me backtrack a bit Mm -hmm. so I was still in academia and COVID hit right and at the time I was working part-time I was working in alcohol research which was great because I read so much about alcohol Dangerous, and the, dangerous. The, the dangers of alcohol that I didn't even feel like drinking <laughs> during COVID. Wow. But um, yeah, but but my point is I had some time because I was working part time and and already, you know, that was a few years back and I was already feeling tired of working in the academic environment. And I just knew I had to find something else or move into other things. And I couldn't work out what. And that's when COVID hit. And um and I wasn't in a good space mentally. You know, there were some challenges in my family. It, 
just life was really tough. And that was one reason why I went part time in the academic world. Okay. I couldn't manage a full time academic post yeah. anymore with what yeah. was happening back um, at home. So, um, yeah, so so I was looking and this is also where the ADHD thing comes in. Mm -hmm. I was in a loop of negative thinking ruminating thoughts and thoughts just going and when you've got an ADHD there's no stopping your thinking I mean there is sorry let me backtrack but it's hard you need strategies and you know I had a lot of negative thoughts just going ping 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 in my head you know a hundred thoughts a minute <laughs> and I was thinking right this is a sink or swim situation you know I'm at home um, you can't meet up with people, which mm -hmm. was always my my way of energizing myself and yeah. just keeping myself in good in good um, in a positive mood, I guess. And I thought I need I need something. I need something to deal with this negative thinking. And I found a course which was called Twenty Eight Days to a Positive Mind. Uh, listened to the guy, you know, he was doing a masterclass. Listened to him, thought, oh, that sounds really good. And I did the course, which was really, really good. And the guy who ran this course, goodness, course, <laughs> was a hypnotherapist and uh, NLP. So that's Neuro Linguistic Programming. Okay. It's a spin-off of hypnosis okay. um, practitioner. And as part of the course, and I later learned that the whole course was actually based on a therapy method, which is used both in NLP and in hypnosis, um, which is in NLP, it's called the six step reframe and in, um, in hypnosis, it's called um, parts therapy. Okay. Um, and it was really interesting, really good. And as part of the course, he was doing group hypnosis online. I had never come across hypnosis before. Never. I'd never even been to a show. Like my only association with hypnosis was Scooby-Doo. Right, <laughs> Scooby-Doo right? films. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and people clucking like chickens. Exactly. Because exactly. the evil hypnotists hypnotized you them. You got it. See, that's Obeying that's the master exactly. and all that stuff, right? But of course okay. I thought, oh, that's just rubbish, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so, but my point is I had no preconceived ideas at all. It was completely, and I was just... Hypnosis online in a group setting. Why not, right? Open, whatever. Oh, whatever. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I was yeah. just open to it because yeah. I really liked the stuff the guy was doing and okay. teaching us, and I was thinking, whatever's, you know. So, um, so, so I just, I just let myself just tune into the process basically, and it was completely different than I would have imagined it to be. So basically, it's a process where maybe you you, you teach people to to go inward a bit, to really focus on something. Mm -hmm. And very often you take them through a guided, a kind of guided visualization. Okay. It's a bit similar to meditation, but maybe the object is a bit different. Okay. Because in, in hypnosis, you're, you're usually working hypno, clinical hypnosis. So I'm talking hypnotherapy at the moment. Okay. You're usually working towards solving a problem. Right. So some kind of change work, some kind of transformation. Yeah. And um, so so we were doing this guided hypnosis session and I just allowed myself to just, you know, go with the flow, run with it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I actually went in really deep and I had this vision, I think, <laughs> or at least I knew that um, it was all about, you know, this guided meditation where you go down a path, you go into a garden and you call in a part of you that you want to speak to. It's, it's all based on this theory that okay. there are different parts of ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, Which yeah, yeah, makes absolute yeah, sense, yeah. right? And, um, and, and if there's a problem, you might need to call in that part that is somehow behind the problem or causing the problem. Just speak to this part. That's, that's, I know it sounds whack, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it works. Okay. And um, 
So and I and, and in this hypnosis session, I actually a younger version of me came to me and and I would have sworn it was actually visual, which for certain reasons was absolutely amazing. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. But um, but that experience really freaked me out, to be honest. It really because I didn't even think that kind of thing is possible. Right. And I was thinking this is fascinating. What is happening in a person's mind yeah. in this during this hypnosis that these things just come up? See, that's your that's your researcher getting that's give, my get researcher everything out of the way. What's the yeah. answer? What's the answer? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I was yeah. like, this is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I got so interested in hypnosis that I first I just did a and Facebook ads. Uh, found me. Yes, <laughs> started, of course, of course. Started so you were bombarded, yes. Bombarded yeah. by all these different, you know, uh, courses and talks about hypnosis. And a lot of the stuff was for free at the time. Okay. And um, so I started listening to different masterclasses. Then I, you know, did a six-week course, just an introductory course to see what it's about, and a six-week NLP course. And, um, and I was getting more and more intrigued. And I just thought, this is actually fascinating. I want to learn more about it. And I started training in hypnosis. And that's when um, the challenges started, because I started training in hypnosis, and it suddenly appeared that I'm a really difficult hypnotic subject. So basically, people, you know, I was training with other people, we were all practicing with each other. And the methods we were learning, mm -hmm. I could, would work on the person I was working with, but not on me. And, um, and, and I got so discouraged that at some point, you know, because I was getting this, I was getting branded this Problem. difficult subject, Problem. yes. problematic yeah. Yeah. subject. Yeah. And it just completely shook my confidence. And, um, and I just left it for some time because I was like, mm, maybe it's not for me, you know, and I just left it. And but but I was still intrigued and I remained in the hypnosis circles. And um, and then I asked this lady, a hypnotist, fellow hypnotist from a course, if she yeah. could help me overcome a, a problem. And the interesting thing about her specifically was what attracted me to her was that, well, first of all, she was really experienced. But second of all, she mentioned that she works with autistic people. And I was thinking, OK, I'm not autistic to the best of my knowledge anyway. But I was thinking, but I'm but I know I'm difficult. Yeah. And often autistic people have a different setup than the average person and you need to work with them differently. And I initially was thinking about, you know, I initially contacted her because I was thinking of help for somebody else actually that is autistic. That somebody didn't want the help. And I yeah. said to her, well maybe you'll work with me because I have some problems that I'd really like to overcome. And she did this hypnosis session for me, um, which lasted three hours. It was just bonkers. But she really helped me because um, she helped me overcome kind of a feeling of grief and guilt after my mum's death. Yeah. That was following me around for over 20 years. My mum died when I was 25 and 50 now. <laughs> so that was a long time to yeah. be living in this grief and a feeling of guilt that I hadn't managed to save her. You know, she died of cancer. Um and I was I was amazed. I was just I was just, you know, my mind was blown. I was thinking three hours, three hours to what to, to tackle 25 years to of tackle 20 right? something years so, well, of an emotional issue. So this is really important. Let's dive deeper on that.
so yeah so so three hours mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're looking at 25 years worth of emotions that you've been carrying around with you mm-hmm. and untangling that right starting to yes. recognize it so what was the impact then the impact was huge because i just started feeling so much lighter mm-hmm. and so much more positive really and just you know when you've got something weighing on your heart yeah, yeah. somewhere even yeah. if you're not thinking about it or aware of it on a daily basis you're it's carrying still around there. right you're carrying, you're around, carrying yeah. this baggage around yeah. basically and and i have to say three hours is an incredibly long hypnosis session okay. incredibly long yeah. like honestly most people do not do that most sessions take about 60 minutes, maybe 90, sometimes faster. My trainers sometimes do a five minute session. (laughs) So it's, but but my point is, um, I was amazed that, that this can work so quickly, so effectively and help you with such a big issue. And, and I was just thinking, I need to explore this further. I need to do this. It's just because I want to help people as well. You know, I know how much it helped me to to clear all that stuff. Yeah. And honestly, I had been in therapy for it. Yeah. You know, there was yeah, a number yeah. of things yeah. I was things I was trying to do to overcome that issue and it wasn't working. And then one hypnosis session gone. So 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 that was the power and and then yeah. you you thought I I I need to kind of show others the the possibilities here, right? And mm. so so you you did you train then and yeah. you certified and yeah. now you're you're delivering yeah. hypnotherapy sessions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went back, I started training with some different trainers um, who are absolutely fantastic. I can... was, was there different approaches, Paulina? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think when you start training and whatever, not just hypnotherapy, but when you start training, you, you know, you kind of learn one way and you think, oh, this is the way. And then as a researcher, I just cannot help myself. <laughs> I have to have the big picture. I have to have a lot of knowledge, right? Yeah. So I signed up for like a hypno summit. That's what it was called. Wow. And there were all these different people showing all these different methods. And I was I was like, whoa. So there are so many different ways of doing this. Okay. And there are. Yeah. So, you know, there are many, many different ways of doing hypnosis. Some of it, people wouldn't even think it's hypnosis, uh, you know, you do hypnosis without a so-called trance, which is a kind of charged concept anyway, and what even is trance? Yeah. <laughs> but there's just, honestly, there's there's just a multitude of methods of doing hypnosis. There is no one method. And that, that's so, true in life for lots of things, right? You, yeah. you, you can achieve it via a different different variety of methods and ways. Yeah. So, so that doesn't surprise me. But I guess the more you learn about the different approaches, the more capable you are of adjusting to your... yes. Exactly. Or, or patient exactly. Or whatever. Yeah. And that that brings me onto the aphantasia stuff. <laughs> well, this is this and is ADHD the bit, this, stuff. And and this is the this is the primary reason you know that that I said I've I've got to get you in the studio. This this blew my mind, right? So, right. Um, and you must get this reaction all the time. So, you I, you you talked about aphantasia. I didn't even know how to spell it. Mm-hmm. And let alone what it meant, mm-hmm. um, and and many other people I talk to say it's a Disney film, right? That's the common <laughs> that's the common answer. Close, <laughs> but so I did a bit of research, which involves Google, yeah, and I just couldn't believe it. I mm-hmm. I had my eyes completely open. So explain what aphantasia is, mm-hmm. and it's something you've always you've always had, yeah. and the the you know what percentage of the population 
has this and do, do they realize they have it? And so please just give us a, a very brief summary of, of what it is. Okay, so aphantasia is, was originally defined as the lack of a mind's eye, or in simpler language, the inability to visualize, to conjure up pictures in your head. So basically, it's like, you know, when I think of something, I can think of it, but I cannot, if I close my eyes, I cannot see it. <laughs> I can think of it, I have a concept of it, but but my mind is just blank, right? It's black up there. There's, and I cannot see anything. So that's the bit that yeah. I just couldn't. I struggled to accept that that was even a possibility. <laughs> well, well, you can imagine how big a shock I got when I learned that other people can visualize. I couldn't believe it. And I was 40 something at the time. And I was actually in a therapist's room. And she was asking me about my childhood. And I just drew a blank. I couldn't remember anything. And um, and then she said, well, if when you think about your mom, uh, can you can you see your mom's face? I was like, no. And then she said, OK, what about can you close your eyes and imagine an apple? And can you see it in your head? And can you turn it around? And I just literally started laughing like a mad woman. <laughs> and I said to her, like, of course not. Who can do that? <laughs> like, don't be ridiculous. And she said, about 99% of the population. And I said, what? And I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, people see things? Like like on a computer screen? They actually, like in their heads? Like you close your eyes, you see things? It's amazing. I was, it was the shock of my life. And I think that was back in 2017 or 2018. I'm not sure now, but but it was a few years back, right? And, um, and I was completely baffled. I was like, nah. And I remember I came back home and I put up a post on Facebook, you know, saying to my friends, OK, guys, I have a question. <laughs> Close your eyes, imagine an apple, turn it around in your head. What do you see? And most people were like, yeah, an apple, yeah, it's yellow or, or red or whatever. And, I, and somebody said, oh, nothing. And I thought, whoa. And then I started Googling. And I realized that, you know, I came across the term aphantasia and um, and it was only a concept that was named, not concept, it was a condition that was yeah. named only in 2015. So it doesn't mean it's not been around. It's just science has not really looked into it. Wow. Because most people just assume that other people Absolutely. can visualize. Um, yeah, yeah but, but we can't, right? And, and I have to say, so when it was originally coined in 2015, it was, it was just described as the lack of visual ability, right? Okay. Yeah. But... Uh, Research has shown, and that's my experience as well, that most aphantasics are, uh, don't have mental imagery across more than one sense. So I cannot, so, okay, so when I try to imagine things, I cannot see anything, but also I cannot imagine a sense of touch. I can't hear things in my head. I can't, you know, I, I can't reproduce music or voices in my head. I can't reproduce smells. So for me, it cuts across all senses. It's not just the visual. See, that, that's new information today. I didn't even realise that. Yeah. I genuinely thought it was just visual. So it no. actually crosses senses. That's It that's crosses incredible. senses. And what I found really, and that is the main reason why I found it so difficult to go into hypnosis. Of course, because that involves visualisation, right? To an not extent. Always, not, not always. Not always. Okay. And it really depends on how you are trained. And it really depends on your own abilities as a therapist, basically. But I was trained in highly visual methods. And I was trained in methods that involved things like 
so-called phenomena. So you suggest yeah. to somebody that, for example, that your arm is stiffening, it's so stiff that you can't bend it. Yeah. And a lot of people, if you suggest it to them, yeah. Uh, they really feel it okay. and they can't bend their arm. Yeah. I can always bend my arm. Okay. I can always open my eyes. I can't, you know, there were there were just these things that made me difficult because I just, it just didn't resonate with me. I just couldn't do it. And it was, it was so discouraging. But, at, but as I said, after the hypnosis session I had, I just thought, never mind, like, you know, just get over yourself, woman, just train yeah, in this. Yeah, yeah. The fact that you can't experience it the other way others do doesn't mean that you, you can't, can't help it. others. Absolutely. 100%. And, um, yeah. and but but during my training, I was becoming more and more vocal about, okay, so I can't do this. Yeah. Are there any workarounds? Or how would you work with me or whatever? And, um, and the more I started speaking up, the more other people from the training started this is the, this is the key. Yeah. getting in touch yeah, with me yeah. saying, I'm the same, yeah. I'm the same. And I thought, whoa, so it's yeah. not just me. So there's more of us. And um, and that kind of being a researcher, I couldn't help myself. I thought this is a research project. So I started my own kind of passion research into aphantasia and hypnosis yeah. with, with an object of finding out how to best work with people who cannot visualize because i kind of noticed that i thought this is a gap this is a gap in our training of course it is this yeah. is a gap in, in the knowledge and one percent one percent ish of the population no so no no no, no. no? it's more it's more so when when the term was coined in 2015 uh -huh. they said one percent of the population okay. has it now they're saying it's closer to four percent around four percent personally personally you think it's more i believe it's much more because I believe... you wouldn't have been part of those statistics no. prior to recent I mean, the thing is, you know, the, the thing is with the statistics, yeah. you know, the, the, how you do it is basically you take you survey a group of people and yeah. test them, right? Yeah. In this case, test them. Yeah. But um, but the thing is, I keep coming across people who say, "Oh, that's me," and I'm thinking it's impossible. It's an, it's statistically impossible. But I keep coming across the four in one hundred that are saying, yeah, "This is me," I, I right? Get you. So, which is why your inclination is it's higher than that. I think it's higher because another thing is, um, aphantasia is a neurodivergence. Okay. It's a so-called neutral neurodivergence. Okay. So it's not seen as an impairment or some kind of medical condition. Yeah. But uh, research has shown, and I'm observing this more and more, that it's um, often related with other neurodivergencies. So if you're if you're if you have autism, there's research on this that there's a higher propensity among autistic people yeah. to have aphantasia or some other imagery okay, okay. extreme because it Makes can sense. be the other way around, yeah. hyperphantasia, yeah. where you see almost like in real life, right? And um, and I can see this very clearly among people who have ADHD, like me. That's yep. another thing yep. I discovered very late in life during COVID as well. <laughs> so well, so let's come on to ADHD. But before we do yeah. that, on mm -hmm. the aphantasia, yeah. you're you're going to go and talk, are you, specifically about about yeah. that topic at a at a at a conference soon? Yes, yes. So um, so I'm doing this research with a group of aphantasic hypnotherapists, okay. which is probably the most difficult group I could have chosen because they know exactly what I'm <laughs> but doing. But if you and can I'm do that, you can do anything after that. Well, yeah. yeah, that's my hope. Um, yeah, and I'll be talking about aphantasia and hypnosis at this year's um, UK hypnosis convention oh, wow. in London in November, which in November. I'm, I'm rather proud of, to be honest. Yeah, you because, should be, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I've not been in the field of hypnosis for that yep. long. Yeah. Um, but I do believe that I have quite unique skills Absolutely. in that in that profession because yep. I have both a very strong scientific background mm -hmm. and then I've got 
I'm a certified hypnotherapist, yeah. so I know how to do this stuff. I'm a practitioner, right? Yeah. So I kind of bring and and when I started doing the research, I didn't come to it from a research point of view, from an academic point of view. Mm-hmm. I came to it through practice, from a practitioner's point of view, which actually makes a huge difference. <laughs> and, and that's utopia, isn't it? Yeah. Being able to kind of take in the, the the research but also live and breathe it as well right yeah. through experience yeah and i think those two worlds together are probably the most powerful way of taking it forward i think so and i've always you know going back to academia i've always felt as a bit of a non-academic academic okay because i was much more interested in the practical in the applications yeah, yeah, yeah. of my research yeah. i was interested in the research analysis practical applications of my research rather than the theories. Yes. I have to say the theories yeah. would do my head in. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So but ADHD I'm... then, ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this this is this one of those things that goes with the neurodivergence? Yeah, so I, yeah. Okay. So ADHD is a neurodivergence as well. Yeah, yeah. The same as autism or yeah. dyslexia or aphantasia. Yeah. And um, and as I said, my my mid late 40s have been full of surprises a lot of things that i learned about myself that i had no idea about and adhd was one of these things and i wasn't looking for a diagnosis or whatever you know but there were always some things in my life i struggled with and then i kept getting this feedback throughout my life mm-hmm. that i'm unique or weird or different and when I was a kid I was thinking oh it's probably because I grew up in two countries because I live in a communist country but I speak fluent English and I have a British passport you know it was very it was a very unique situation to be in so I kind of always thought that's That's why I've got a different surname you know um but but I was getting these off-the-cuff comments from time to time in my life and and they would really stick with me it was things like Paulina, you always choose the hardest way to do things. Or Paulina, you always start from the wrong side. Or, you know, or I still remember this situation a few years back when um, when I was still in academia and I just had too much on. At that point in time, I was panicking and I went to my boss and I said, I don't know what to do first. I don't know what to do. You know, I've got this, this, this and this, which yeah. needs to be done. And I've still got this presentation that I need to prepare for this conference tomorrow. And she looked at me and she said, why do you, and I said, I need to prepare the analysis for it all. You know, and she said, Paulina, why, why do you want to prepare the analysis for it? Like, you wrote a paper on this subject a few years back. And I looked at her and I thought, oh my God, this woman remembers, she didn't even know me at the time. She just knows what I've written. She remembers I wrote a paper on this very subject. And I don't, even though I wrote it myself. And it was just, it was such a shock to me. And I remember she looked at me and she said, I wish I could be inside your head just for one day, just to see what <laughs> it's like. Just to see what it's like. And it was just these these things that made me realize that I'm somehow different, but I couldn't put my finger on okay. why am I different? What is What is it that's different about me? And then there were just these things where I knew I was very clever, right? Objectively and yep. capable on the yep. one hand. I mean, you know, I'd managed to, to do two masters and a PhD, so I can't be stupid. Yeah. But on the other hand, I couldn't manage simple things that other people don't have an issue with managing. Yep. So things like organizing my files, uh, structuring my time, you know, just As in tidying those, my those, those are difficult things. <laughs> those are really difficult things for me. Um, and 
And it was it was a bit, you know, um, I didn't want to own up to them, I guess, for many years because I just thought, I'm just a bit stupid. As in you thought it would negatively reflect. Yeah, yeah, because especially as when you're at this level, you know, working at right, this right. level in a yeah. high... Yeah. At a high level, in a in a way, in a respected profession, of you're, you're, you're expected. There's an expectation. There's yeah, an expectation yeah, yeah. that you can yeah. handle these yeah, things. Yeah. Like, what's difficult about organizing your folders? If you can folders, do this, this yeah. Is if you easy, can do complex right? yeah, analysis, yeah, yeah, yeah. why can't you organize yeah. your folders? Like, yeah. there's just this assumption, and okay. I didn't know I had ADHD, right? And then one day, I came across this post in a Facebook group for academic women. It so happens, and the poster was writing like. Those of you who are who have ADHD and are in academia, how do you manage this, 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 and this? Because I find it really difficult. And I read through, you know, the, the things that she mentioned, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. That is 100% me. And then people started posting articles below that post, you know, oh, yeah, you know, this article about ADHD in yep. women, and this article, and this test. And I just, the more I started reading, I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> But so, what what was the sense? What was the emo the overriding emotion at that point? Was it relief that yeah. you could now explain yes. to yourself some of some of the traits and the behaviours, yeah. or or was it anxiousness? No, no. absolutely not. No. I was so relieved. relieved. I was so relieved because I realised, and a lot of my negative thinking came from this: you should be doing better. You should be able to do this. Why are you so stupid? Self-critical. Self-critical. Why are you so lazy? Why are you so stupid? Yep. You know, why is your house a mess? And it's not that I'm still not questioning <laughs> why is my house a mess, but I kind of understand now that my brain works differently. And there yep. are just things where I need to be a bit easier yep. on myself yep. because because I've managed quite well in life anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which turned out to be a bit of a barrier when I was seeking an ADHD diagnosis, actually, the fact that I was seen as successful and very intelligent. And, um, but that's a, a bit of a, another topic, yeah. how, how the diagnostic process uh, works. But, um, but the thing for me was, I just, it was just such a relief. And, and then I joined a number of ADHD groups and was like, whoa, there are other women like me. We're struggling with exactly the same things. They're as wacky as me. This is great. That, that must have helped, right? <laughs> Honestly, the, the yeah. kind of camaraderie around yeah. shared experience, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and now, you know, now that I know, in hindsight, it explains so much of my life and of my life choices and professional choices as well. So, so the big question that I have then is is, and I remember putting a a, a post around my own achievements the the other day on on the running side. I ran an ultra for the first time, mm -hmm. which which I'm mentioning a lot at the moment because it's recent <laughs> history and I'm really proud. Well Thank you, uh, but I I I noticed your comment back was you know. Um, when I was reflecting on that is kind of, you know, the, the midlife crisis, the, the, the new you, yeah. what stuck in my mind is those realizations that you went through mm. and the explanations that you suddenly understood that, ex you know, that explained a lot of your life up to that point. Yeah. Did you also feel like actually the chains were off and you were yeah. able to move forward in a much more authentic and free manner with kind of your life forward. Um, 
because if that is the case, that mm. assumption's right, then my goodness, I mean, that must have felt phenomenal. It did, because I didn't even realise um, there's a lot of shame. When, really? when you have ADHD, there's a lot of feelings of shame because you always, you know that you're different. And even if you're, because ADHD is a spectrum, right? Okay. So not everybody is the same as yeah. me. There, yeah. There's some people really have very, you know, they even find it difficult to, I don't know, to get the same pair of shoes on okay. rather than not two different shoes. Okay. ADHD really is a spectrum. Okay. And, you know, some people, for some people, some traits are stronger, some are weaker, some are just missing. Yeah. But um, but I'm one of the examples of, let's just say, gifted women, right? Yeah. Women who are very intelligent, yeah. who are seen as successful, who have achieved a lot in their lives in one way. Yeah. But on the other hand, I always felt like such a failure because, you know, I was very successful academically. And I think that's why I studied for so many years, because when you're studying, there's a structure. All you need to do follow is follow the structure, the structure yeah, yeah. do your work. Yeah. Turn work in, which I didn't always do on time, but <laughs> that's another thing. Perfectionism. I, I've always been very okay. perfectionistic, okay. which is also often an ADHD trait, which I didn't realize. But um, but the thing was, I had a structure and I was following a structure. And I sometimes think that, as I said, I never knew why did I actually want to do a PhD? I mean, nobody in my family has a PhD. I was the first person in my family to, to have higher education, but I always had this ambition and I and, I, and now I'm in hindsight, I'm thinking, was it to prove to myself that I'm not stupid? Because I always had this feeling that I'm stupid in some way, yeah. you know? Yeah. And um, and I think with this feeling of failure, so people would see me as successful because educationally I was successful. I was working as an academic. It's not an easy job, you know, not everybody gets a PhD. Yeah. But I was feeling like this huge failure because other parts of my life weren't as successful or other areas of my life weren't as successful and financially I wasn't successful you know it's uh, I never had money and I was thinking how is it possible that I am so intelligent yeah I know so much yeah. I have such skills and I'm not making money like yeah. how is it even possible yeah. and now I kind of understand because um, people with ADHD are also often quite idealistic you know where the visionaries the big thinkers yeah. the people who are very much mission driven maybe but maybe practical things like savings, budgeting, doesn't come so <laughs> organizing easy, right? your yeah, finances yeah. doesn't come so easy. So it it feels like it feels like you're in a place which is a really good place actually, and that you've. I mean, it sounds. Like, I don't know whether this sounds good or bad, but it almost sounds like you've given yourself permission now yeah. to be you. I've given myself and, permission and, to be weird. And acceptance, <laughs> right? Acceptance that yes. you're all of those things. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Right? This is the point. Exactly. That's okay. So I, I want to close in terms of just asking you what the future looks like. What you're, you know, you come out of that world, you're practicing hypnotherapist. Mm. Now you're speaking at conferences. I mean, this is all very back to your old world. This is all yeah. putting you on a pedestal, right? Um, but what, what does the future look like in terms of ambition and direction of travel for you? Mm -hmm. Well, I have big ambitions and big visions. Really? But okay. Yes, okay. yes. But with ADHD, it's always like, okay, the vision is big. How do you break it you down? You've got to control How do you it. Get yeah, there? yeah, yeah. But basically, you know, I called my company No Woo Woo. Okay. Because I was, I know that a lot of people perceive hypnosis, hypnotherapy as really woo woo. But I 
so kind of, you know, non-scientific yeah, yeah. and so on. But I have never been this person who's, you know, I am very much evidence-based. Yes. I'm a scientist yeah, at heart. Absolutely, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't go for, for I don't know, <laughs> I'm not somewhere up there with the fairies, yeah. right? So I believe that things that are tested, tried and tested, and that's one of the messages I want to get out there into the world because we don't get to down to discussing this. There's too many different things. Yeah. That's a the rambling as an ADHD <laughs> thing as well. But um, but you mentioned earlier that, you know, most people, when they think of hypnosis, they think of yeah. stage yeah. hypnosis yeah. and just doing stuff exactly. for fun and yeah. clucking like chickens and so on. And it has its place on, on the stage, right? But when we're talking about hypnotherapy or clinical hypnosis, you have no interest in people clucking. <laughs> and of the thing course. is... If you're a stage hypnotist, you select people who are highly suggestible. I wouldn't go on stage. I wouldn't be. Nobody would work with me on stage yeah, because yeah. I'm not a good subject Too in that way. Too no, unpredictable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Predictable. I'll do nothing. <laughs> so, um, but you know, but but and people have to be up for the fun. So yeah. the one big message I do want to put out there is that you cannot hypnotize somebody against their will. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to take part in this, whether it's stage hypnosis or if it's, you know, coming to a hypnotherapist to make a change in your life. Yeah. You have to be willing to take part in the process. It's not like me taking control over your mind yeah. and doing stuff. I sometimes wish it was because yeah. then we'd sort everybody out. No yeah. problem. Yeah. You really need to want to change your behavior, change things in your life. And then we can work kind of directly with your emotions and and help you. Um, but sorry, I'm kind of going off topic again so your question was about plans okay so 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 i want to build a company so no woo woo because i want yep. to build on my academic background yeah um and show people that hypnosis is as good a therapy therapy method yep. as any other or actually i think it's much better to be honest okay. and i won't say it works a hundred percent for everyone yep. because no therapy work, you know method works for yep. everyone always but honestly my experience um is that it is so much more effective than many other therapy methods because you're kind of speaking i know it sounds a bit i know this might sound a bit woo woo but we all know that we do have a conscious mind and a subconscious Absolutely, mind 100%. something that runs certain you know patterns yep. that we might not even be aware of and if you're connecting directly with that part of your brain with with the emotions you can really change things quickly and what i want to do in general is first of all popularize hypnosis, hypnotherapy, okay. yeah. and second of all, um, strengthen the field by bringing the research into it more yeah. from a practitioner's no point of view. Right? No, no woo, -woo. let's just like, let's test things, you know? Love it, love it. And I really want to make hypnotherapy accessible to people who are a bit different like me, yeah. to people who are neurodivergent, yeah. because I know that we roll in a bit of a different way. And yeah. especially my own experience as somebody who has aphantasia, so can't visualize ADHD, so I'm a bit fidgety, and also SDAM, which is severely deficient autobiographical memory, which means I remember very little from the past. Goodness. And if somebody tries regression methods with me, like Doesn't going work. back to the childhood, yeah. hypnosis or not, I can't remember anything. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember hardly anything, no specific situations. And, um, and yeah, so that's where I see myself or the company going in the future. At the moment, I'm focusing on one-to-one um, -one hypnotherapy. I help people mainly with anxiety, building confidence, self-acceptance. Great. Um, I have a particular kind of passion for working with people who are neurodivergent yep. because I know I know life's a bit more difficult for us yep. because of the messages yep. we get 
from the society about like you know trying to fit in and so on so helping those people gives you more more i guess fundamental pleasure from from helping yeah, those people like, but, yeah. but you're not you're not just about helping those people no, you're just about no, no. Any, anyone who can no. see value in it yeah you'd encourage them to come forward but they want they they must be in a position i guess to be open to change right yes. that's the key bit yeah um or another thing i do yeah. is because i kind of like mixing um working with the subconscious we're working with the conscious yep. mind because yep. i do see value in that and you know i know how much it helps me to get out of these negative thinking loops yes. so that's another thing i do i call it mindset coaching which i don't know if it's the best term but that's yep. what i do yep. help people overcome negative thinking and um and i'll soon start organizing workshops online workshops on overcoming negative thinking also on things like overcoming um, anxiety, calming your mind and workshops aimed at hypnotherapists on how to work with people who cannot oh, visualize. That. That. So that's kind of in the near future and in the further future. We shall see we where shall this see. crazy road takes me. <laughs> that's the exciting bit. So we, we, we've run out of time for today, but I can't thank you enough for coming in. I think we've touched on so many topics that I'm sure there'll be another Paulina out there that suddenly goes, Hold on. That's me. Penny drop, right? <laughs> uh, so wish you all the best. I'll put the contact details for you at the bottom of anything that we post so that sure. people can get directly in touch mm -hmm. and ask for help. But thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for the invitation and letting me put this out into the world. Good stuff. Mm -hmm.